0: chapter 1 of the countess of rodelstadt this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org the countess of rodelstadt by george sand translated by francis g shaw chapter 1 the hall of the italian opera at berlin built during the first years of the reign of Frederick the Great, was then one of the finest in Europe. The entrance was free, the expenses being paid by the king. Still, tickets were required for admission, all the boxes having their fixed destination. Here the princes and princesses of the royal family, there the diplomatic corps, then illustrious travelers, then the academy, the generals elsewhere, in fine, everywhere the king's family, the king's household, the king's officers, the king's protégés, and all this without giving ground for complaint, since it was the king's theater and the king's actors. There remained for the good inhabitants of the good city of Berlin a small portion of the pit, for the greater part was filled by military men each regiment having the right to send a certain number per company. Instead of a joyous, impressible, and intelligent public, the artists had therefore before their eyes a pit of six-foot heroes, as Voltaire called them, covered with their high caps and the greater number surmounted by their wives, whom they took upon their shoulders. The whole a very brutal society, Smelling strongly of tobacco and brandy, understanding nothing, with their eyes staring open, permitted neither to applaud nor to hiss, out of respect to their orders, and making nevertheless a great noise by their perpetual motion. There were necessarily behind these gentry two rows of boxes whence the spectators could hear and see nothing, but for the sake of propriety, They were obliged to be regularly present at the performances which His Majesty was so magnificent as to pay for, for their benefit. His Majesty himself never missed a performance. It was a means of keeping under his eye, in a military manner, the numerous members of his family and the uneasy swarm of his courtiers. His father, Gros guillaume Fat William, had set him this example in a theater of poorly joined boards where, in presence of bad German actors, the royal family in the court were sadly chilled the whole winter and endured the rain without winking while the king slept. Frederick had suffered from this domestic tyranny. He had cursed it, he had undergone it, and he had speedily put it again in force as well as many other customs much more despotic and cruel, the excellence of which he had recognized as soon as he was the only one in his kingdom who no longer suffered by them. Still, no one dared to complain. The building was a superb one, the properties excellent, the artists remarkable, and the king almost always erect in the orchestra near the footlights, his glass directed to the stage, set the example of indefatigable dilettantism. Our readers know all the praises which Voltaire, during the first period of his residence at Berlin, bestowed upon the splendors of the court of the Solomon of the North, disdained by Louis XV, neglected by his protectress Madame de Pompadour, persecuted by the body of the Jesuits, His step, the Théâtre Française, he had come, in a moment of spite, to seek honors, appointments, a title of Chamberlain, a great ribbon, and the intimacy of a philosopher king, which last was more flattering in his eyes than all the rest. Like a great baby, the great Voltaire pouted at France, and thought to make all his compatriots burst with spite. He was therefore somewhat intoxicated with his new glory when he wrote to his friends that Berlin was quite worth Versailles, that the opera of Phaeton was the finest that could be seen, and that the prima donna had the finest voice in Europe. Still, at the epoch when we resume our recital, and in order not to perplex our readers, we will mention that almost a year has passed since Consuelo's last adventures the winter being felt in all its rigor at Berlin, and the great king having shown himself somewhat in his true colors, Voltaire began to be singularly disabused, respecting Prussia. He was there in his box between Darjean and La Métrie, no longer pretending to love music, which he had never felt any more than he had true poetry. He had the colic, and, in a melancholy mood, Recalled that ungrateful public of the boisterous benches of Paris, "'whose resistance had been so bitter to him, "'whose applauses had been so sweet, "'whose contact, in a word, had so terribly affected him "'that he had sworn never again to expose himself to it, "'though he could not help thinking of it without ceasing "'and working for it without rest. "'On that evening, nevertheless, the performance was excellent.' It was carnival. The whole royal family, even the Margravines married in the depths of Germany, were assembled at Berlin. The Titus of Metastasio and Haas was performed, and the two first singers of the Italian corps, the Porporino and the Porporina, filled the first parts. If our readers will please make a slight effort of memory they will recollect that these two dramatic personages were not husband and wife, as their surnames would seem to indicate, but that the first was the Signor Ilberti, an excellent contralto, and the second, the Cingarella Consuelo, an admirable cantatrice, both pupils of Professor Porpora, who had permitted them according to the Italian custom of the time, to bear the glorious name of their master. It must be confessed that the Signora Porporina did not sing in Prussia with as much enthusiasm as she had felt herself capable of in better days. While the clear contralto of her comrade resounded with a faltering under the arched roof of the Berlin Opera House, sustained by an assured support a habit of undisputed success and the unvarying payment of 15,000 francs income for two months' labor. The poison gorilla, more romantic perhaps, certainly more disinterested and less accustomed to the icy coldness of the North and to that of an audience of Prussian corporals, did not feel electrified and sang with that conscientious and perfect method which gives no hold for criticism, but which is not sufficient to excite enthusiasm. The enthusiasm of dramatic artists and that of the audience cannot dispense with each other. Now there was no enthusiasm at Berlin under the glorious reign of Frederick the Great. Regularity, obedience, and what in the 18th century, and particularly with Frederick, was called reason were the only virtues which could expand in that atmosphere, weighed and measured by the hand of the king. In every assembly where he presided, no one whispered or breathed more than the king was pleased to permit. There was in all-that-mass of spectators, but one spectator free to give himself up to his impressions, and that one was the king. He alone was the whole public, and though he was a good musician— Though he loved music, all his faculties, all his tastes, were subjected to so icy a logic that the royal glass, fixed upon all the gestures, and one might have said, upon all the modulations of the cantatrees, instead of stimulating, entirely paralyzed her. It was well for her, moreover, that she underwent this fascination, the least inspiration the least unexpected enthusiasm would probably have scandalized the king and the court, while learned and difficult ornaments, executed with the purity of an irreproachable mechanism, delighted the king, the court, and Voltaire. Voltaire said, as everybody knows, Italian music has much the advantage over French music because it has more ornaments and the difficulty overcome is at least something. This was the manner in which Voltaire understood art. He might have said, as did a certain joker of our day, when asked if he loved music, it does not exactly annoy me. Everything was going on very well. The opera was approaching without accident to its termination. The king was highly satisfied, and turned from time to time towards his chapel master, to express to him his approbation by a nod. He was even preparing to applaud the porporina at the end of her cavatina, as he had the goodness to do in person and always judiciously, when, by an inexplicable caprice, the porporina, in the midst of a brilliant roulade which he had never missed, stopped short fixed her haggard eyes upon a corner of the theater, clasped her hands, crying out, Oh, my God! fainted and fell her whole length upon the stage. The porporino hastened to raise her. It was necessary to carry her to the wing, and a buzz of questions, reflections, and remarks arose among the audience. During this agitation, the king apostrophized the tenor, who had remained upon the stage and under favor of the noise which covered his voice. Well, what is it, said he, in his brief and imperious tone? What does this mean? Go and see Conciolini. Be quick. Conciolini returned in a few seconds and, leaning respectfully above the footlights, near which the king, standing, was resting on his elbow. Silas, said he. "'The Signora Porporina is as if dead. "'It is feared she will not be able to finish the opera.' "'Come, come,' said the king, shrugging his shoulders. "'Let them give her a glass of water and make her smell something, "'so as to put an end to this as soon as possible.' "'The sopranist, who had no desire to make the king impatient "'and to receive a broadside of ill-humour in public, "'returned to the wing, running like a rat,' and the king began to talk briskly with the leader of the orchestra and the musicians, while the public, much more interested in the king's temper than in the poor porporina, made unheard of but useless efforts to catch the monarch's words. The Baron de Polnitz, grand chamberlain to the king and director of the theater, soon came to give Frederick an account of the state of things. With Frederick, There was none of that solemnity which imposes upon an independent and powerful people. The king was everywhere at home. The theater was his and for him. No one was astonished to see him become the principal actor in this unexpected interlude. "'Well, baron,' said he, loud enough to be heard by a part of the orchestra, "'is this soon to be over? "'It is ridiculous.' Have you no physician in the wing? You ought always to have a physician upon the stage. Sire, the physician is there. He does not dare to bleed the cantatrice, lest he should weaken her and prevent her from continuing her part. Still, he will be obliged to do so if she does not recover from her fainting fit. Then it is serious. It is not a sham, at least. Sire... "'It appears to be very serious. "'In that case, lower the curtain and let us go, "'or let Porporino come and sing us something to indemnify us "'so that we may not end with a catastrophe.' "'Porporino obeyed and sang two pieces admirably. "'The king clapped, the people imitated him, "'and the performance ended. "'A minute afterwards, while the court and city were going out, "'the king was upon the stage.' and caused himself to be conducted by Polnitz to the prima donna's dressing-room. The illness of an actress upon the stage does not excite so much sympathy in the public as it should. In general, however, much the idol may be adored, there is so much selfishness in the enjoyment of the dilettante that he is much more vexed by losing a part of it in consequence of the stoppage of the performance. "'then he is affected by the sufferings and anguish of the victim. "'Some sensible women, as they were called in those days, "'lamented in these terms the catastrophe of the evening. "'Poor little thing! "'She must have had a frog in her throat at the moment of singing her trill, "'and for fear of failing, she preferred being ill. "'I do not believe that there was any deception,' said another lady. "'Still more sensible.' "'she would not have fallen so heavy "'if she were not really ill. "'Ah, who knows, my dear, returned the first. "'A great actress falls as she chooses "'and is not afraid of hurting herself a little. "'That is a great effect with the public. "'What the devil was the matter "'with the poor Marina this evening "'that she made such a fuss Said La Matrie "'to the Marquis d'Argent? "'In another part of the porch,' "'where the fashionable world were crowded together as they went out. "'Can her lover have beaten her?' "'Do not speak thus of a charming and virtuous girl,' replied the Marquis. "'She has no lover, and even if she had one, "'he would not insult her unless he were the meanest of men.' "'Ah, pardon me, Marquis. "'I forgot that I was speaking to the true knight of all ladies of the theatre, "'past, present, and to come. "'Apropos?' How is Mademoiselle Courtois? My dear child, at the same moment said the Princess Amelia of Prussia, the king's sister, abbess of Quedlinburg, to her usual confidant, the beautiful Countess de Kleist, as they returned in her carriage to the palace. Did you remark my brother's agitation during the adventure of this evening? No, madame,' replied Madame de Maupertuis the Grand Governess of the Princess, a very excellent person, very simple and very absent. I did not remark it. Eh, I didn't speak to you, returned the Princess, with that quick and decided tone, which made her sometimes so like Frederick. Do you ever remark anything? There, look at the stars now. I have something to say to de Kleist, and do not wish you to hear me. Madame de Maubertuis conscientiously closed her ears and the princess, leaning toward Madame de Kleist, who was seated opposite her, continued thus, "'You may say what you please. It seems to me that for the first time for fifteen or twenty years, perhaps, since I have been old enough to observe and understand, the King is in love. Your Royal Highness,' said the same last year about Mademoiselle Barberini, and yet His Majesty never thought of her. Never thought of her? You are mistaken, my child. He thought of her so much that when the young Chancellor Cochi made her his wife, my brother, for three days, was in the finest fit of restrained fury he ever had in his life. Your Highness very well knows that His Majesty cannot endure misalliances. Yes, love marriages, that is the name they give them. Miss Alliance, oh, the great word, without meaning, as are all the words that govern the world and tyrannize over individuals. The princess sighed deeply, and passing rapidly, as was her custom, to another state of mind. She said to her grand governess with irony and impatience, Mopertwee, You are listening to us. You are not looking at the stars as I ordered you. It is well worthwhile to be the wife of so great a savant in order to listen to the nonsense of two fools like de Kleist and me. Yes, I tell you, resumed she, addressing her favorite. The king had an inclination for that Berberini. I know from good authority that he often went to take tea with Jordan and Chazol's in her apartments, after the performance, and that she, more than once, was even at the suppers at San Souci, which, before her, was without example in the life of Potsdam. Do you want me to tell you any more? She lived there. She had an apartment there for weeks and perhaps whole months. You see that I know what is going on and that my brother's mysterious ears do not impose upon me. Since your royal highness is so well informed, you cannot be ignorant that for reasons of state, which it does not become me to guess. The king wishes to have people believe that he is not so austere as was supposed, though in fact, though in fact my brother has never loved any woman, not even his own wife, as they say, and as it would seem, well, I do not believe in that virtue, still less in that coldness. Frederick has always been a hypocrite, you see, but he will not persuade me that Mademoiselle Barberini lived in his palace only to make-believe being his mistress. She is as pretty as an angel, as witty as a devil. She is learned and speaks I not know how many languages. She is very virtuous and adores her husband, and her husband adores her. The more that is a horrible misalliance, is it not, De Kleist? Come, you will not answer me. I suspect, noble widow, that you are meditating one with some poor page or some small bachelor of arts. And your highness would also wish to see a misalliance of the heart established between the king and some opera girl. Ah, with the poor Barina, the thing would be more probable and the distance less appalling. I imagine that there is a hierarchy on the stage as at court, but that prejudice is the fancy and the malady of the human race. A singer must hold herself much higher than a dancer, and they say, moreover, that this poor Barina has even more wit, learning, grace, in fine, that she knows still more languages than the Barberina. To speak languages which he does not know is a mania with my brother. And then music, which he also pretends to love a great deal, though he knows nothing about it, you see. There is another point of contact with our prima donna. In fine, she also goes to Potsdam in the summer. She has the apartment which the Barberini occupied at the new Sans Souci. She sings at the King's Little Concerts. Is not this enough to show that my conjecture is true? Your Highness, in vain, flatters yourself that you can discover a weakness in the life of our great prince. All this is done too openly and too gravely for love to have any part in it. Love. No, Frederick does not know what love is, but a certain attraction, a little intrigue. Everybody says so in a low voice. That you cannot deny. Nobody believes it, madam. They do say that the king for the sake of recreation, compels himself to be amused by the chat and the pretty roulades of an actress, but that after fifteen minutes of words and roulades, he says to her, as he would say to one of his secretaries, that is enough for today. If I wish to hear you tomorrow, I will send for you. That is not gallant. If he made court to Madame Cossy in that style I am not astonished that you could not endure him. Do you say that this poor porporina is as savage with him? They say that she is perfectly modest, proper timid, and sad. Well, that is the best way of pleasing the king. Perhaps she is very clever, if she were so, and one could trust to her. Do not trust to anyone, madame. I beg you, not even to madame de Maupoutoui. "'who is sleeping so soundly at this moment. "'Let her snore. "'Awake her asleep. "'She is always as stupid. "'No matter to "'I should like to know this poor porporina "'and see if I can get anything out of her. "'I am very sorry that I was not willing to receive her "'when the king proposed to bring her to me this morning to sing. "'You know, I had a prejudice against her. "'Without foundation, certainly.' It was quite impossible oh that may be as god wills i have been so troubled and terrified for a year that secondary cares are effaced i have a desire to see that girl who knows if she could not obtain from the king what we implore in vain i have imagined so for several days and as i think of nothing but what you know when i saw frederick agitated and anxious about her this evening I was strengthened in the idea that a door of salvation was open to me. I hope your royal highness will be very cautious. The danger is great. You always say that. I have more mistrust and prudence than you. Well, we must think of it. Wake up, my dear governess. We are at home. End of chapter one.